We'll begin tonight where we left off last week with the uh, personal or motivational aspect of ethics. What kind of people does God want us to be? What kind of people perform good works which are pleasing to the Lord? What kind of motives are honoring to God and uh, respect the biblical system of ethics? The first thing we talked about last week was that which enables us to make moral decisions and that which beckons us to make moral decisions, uh, and that's the image of God in which we've been made. Of course, man has fallen into sin. There's been some effect upon the image of God that he is to be, and therefore we talked also about redemption and renewal of ourselves in the image of God. Now, it's this which is presupposed when we talk about the personal or motivational standpoint of ethics as Christians. Uh, the image of God sets us apart from the animal realm. It's that which enables us to make moral decisions. Gorillas don't make moral decisions, and amoebas don't make moral decisions. Um, some people might question that they make any decisions, but even if they do make decisions, they don't make moral ones. They will not be held accountable for uh, moral decisions, whereas we will. Unbelievers make moral decisions, always wrong ones. Uh, now, externally, they may do the right thing, but they never do the right thing for the right reason. They never do it in faith and out of a love for God and for the glory of God. Consequently, one must be renewed in the image of God in order for him to make a right moral decision. So the image of God and renewal in that image are presupposed in the personal and motivational standpoint of ethics. Uh, and then when we read in Scripture, in the various places where we learn that man is the image of God and that we as Christians or believers are renewed in the image of God, we notice that that doctrine always brings with it exhortations to a certain moral kind of life as well. And so this not only enables us to make moral decisions, but it calls for moral decisions as well. So this is enablement and it's uh, exhortation both. After presenting that, basically what we did is we started to look at the process of personal sanctification, the process by which God makes us good people. My first point had to do with the law of God. Basically, we learned the need for God's law and sanctification, and yet the impotence of the law for sanctification. We need the law of God because it's the pattern of righteousness that God gives us in his word, showing us what sort of attitudes and behavior please him. The law of God is an expression of his will in both Old and New Testaments. However, the law of God never has been and never will be powerful to make people comply with its demands. The law of God is pattern but it's not power. Maybe that's one way to summarize what we're saying. It's pattern, but it's not power. It shows us what we should be and how we should behave, but it does not make us do those things, does not make us into that kind of people. And in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapters 3 and 4, Paul discusses this in terms of the contrast between an external code of behavior written on stone and an en enabling uh, of an internalized spirit. He contrasts the law written on stone with the law of the spirit. 
The Spirit, of course, is the Holy Spirit of God, which renews the Christian's heart and gives the power of compliance to the law of God. The external code written on stone never did anything to make those who read the stones do what they ought to do. So the first point in personal sanctification, and both sides need to be equally stressed, the need for the law and yet the impotence of the law in sanctification. Okay, our second point is the fear of God as the source of ethical integrity. Fear of God is the source of ethical integrity. I think perhaps the most characteristic note of biblical piety throughout the Bible is that of the fear of the Lord. Notice in Romans 3, verse 18, how the wickedness of the unbelieving world is explained. Romans 3, verse 18. If you want to capture the reason why the unbelieving world is wicked, Paul says, uh, quoting, of course, the psalm, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's why people are not moral individuals. It's because they have no fear of God. Now, in this respect, please remember that the Old Testament is not on a lower ethical plane. The Old Testament is not somehow less than the New Testament in terms of its moral outlook. It has sometimes been presented in literature that is ignorant, really, of the full teaching of God's Word, that the Old Testament instills fear in people, the New Testament instills love in people and confidence. Well, you can be very sure that there's plenty in the New Testament to make people fear. Jesus taught of that unquenchable fire that certain people will undergo because of their rejection of the gospel and of his own person that is intended to strike fear into the hearts of unbelievers. And in the Old Testament, there was plenty of assurance given of God's redeeming mercy and his protection of his people for all eternity. And so the Old Testament is not on a lower ethical plane when it speaks of the fear of the Lord. The New Testament reiterates the Old Testament doctrine with respect to the fear of the Lord. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? Essentially, it's a religious concept. The fear of the Lord stems from one's notion of God and the attitude which that notion of God brings about in your life. What is your notion of God? You can think of a lot of religions that have ideas about God, notions of God, which do not strike fear into the heart of its practitioners or their practitioners. This is a very popular sport, I think, in our own day. It's been throughout history, but especially in our day, it's a popular sport for people to say, well, you see, my view of God is, and then usually you get this, this really soupy, sentimental idea of somebody who has no moral backbone, certainly no concept of wrath, uh, and would never hurt anybody or never judge anybody for doing anything of the slightest, uh, uh, in the slightest order of misdeed or uh, a bad attitude or anything like that. This is my view of God. Well, of course, that, that view of God does not bring with it a corresponding attitude of fear. The one whom we worship will determine our behavior. And that's why ethics has its source in religion. There's no way to deny that. The one whom we ultimately worship will determine our behavior. Now, in the case of those people who say, well, my idea of God is such and such and such and such, who do they ultimately worship? Their own selves. Because their idea of God comes from where? 
their own heads, their own attitudes. Consequently, they're worshiping their own attitudes. They're projecting their own feelings into a, a vague notion of deity and then turning around and saying that's the God that they follow, which is just to say they follow their own feelings, which is to say they follow themselves, which is to say that they put something before the Lord. Uh, they violate the first commandment. They have another God before uh, the Lord God Almighty, the living God of heaven and earth. The one whom we worship will determine our behavior, and for that reason, ethics has its source in religion. The fear of the Lord, then, is the source of ethical integrity. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? Well, there are two senses that, in which we speak of the fear of the Lord. The first is the sense of terror and dread, if you will, being afraid of God. Now, somewhere along the line, the evangelical church in various regions has gotten the idea that the Bible does not teach that we should be afraid of God. I think probably the source of that is the source of that error is that we take some biblical teaching and overdo it. That is, we so stress some aspect of biblical teaching that we do it to the exclusion of other teachings of the Bible. But you can be very sure that the Bible teaches we ought to be afraid of God, provided we have a reason to be. And the Bible teaches, second premise, we have a reason to be afraid of God. And basically that is, we have offended God. We are not in harmony with his will. We have rebelled against him. We have, metaphorically speaking, shaken our fist in his face. We have said we'll live our own lives. We have sinned. Consequently, a holy God cannot tolerate that, and a holy God will as a matter of fact, judge for all eternity and punish in hell for all eternity people who have such an attitude. There ought to be a terror and dread in the face of the Almighty. It's necessary when there's a reason for it, and for all sinners there's a reason for terror and dread. Now the second sense in which the Bible speaks of the fear of the Lord is being in awe of the Lord, that is, venerating and honoring God. First, one is afraid of God, Secondly, one is in awe of God. One venerates God and honors God. This, of course, is the very soul and the very heart of godliness and rectitude, to venerate and to honor the Lord God Almighty. John uh, Murray says in his book, Principles of Conduct, that the fear of God is the reflex in our consciousness of God's transcendent majesty and holiness. When one considers the transcendent majesty and the holiness of his maker, then the reflex in his consciousness is this veneration, this awe, this honor of God. Now, this adoration does not take its origin from sin. Being afraid of God does. Being in awe of God comes because God has changed our hearts and made us worship him aright. Now, this controlling sense of veneration or awe or honor elicits a profound reverence seen in a number of outworkings. First of all, an all-pervasive sense of God's presence. A man who fears the Lord is one who is constantly aware of God's presence in his life. Secondly, we see the outworking in a sense of our complete dependence on and our complete responsibility to God. When one fears God, one is aware that everything that he is, everything that he ought to be, depends on God. He is responsible to God in every sense. And then thirdly, 
this controlling sense uh, and this profound reverence that one has for his creator and his redeemer will bring about a constant consciousness of his relationship to God. One is constantly aware that God is present, that he stands in a relationship to him, and that he is completely dependent upon and responsible to God. That is the fear of the Lord. And of course, if one does have that pervasive sense of God's presence, that uh, complete dependence upon God, that constant consciousness of one's relationship to Him, in turn, that will bring about awe before God. It will make one circumspect res uh, with respect to His attitudes and actions. It will give Him a tender and an intimate communion with the Lord, and it will bring about a totality commitment, trust, and obedience to all the Lord's requirements. So the fear of the Lord... The fear of God is the, set, is the source of ethical integrity for us. We need the law, but the law is impotent. The fear of the Lord is the source of ethical integrity. And the fourth thing I want to bring out is the... Excuse me, the third thing I want to bring out is the source... I'll get it right here. The third thing I want to bring out is the place of God's word and God's truth in sanctification. God's word and God's truth, or God's word of truth, if you wish. And it's just here that you really need to listen up if you haven't had my ethics courses before or haven't done much reading in this area because this is not commonly discussed in the church. It's something which a lot of Christians miss. God's Word is not only a source of information and ethics. God's Word is all also a sanctifying power in ethics. It's not just information telling us what we should do, but it's also power motivating us to do what we do. Okay, look at Hebrews 4, verse 12. There the author of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living, and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And it is quick to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. Uh, other passages of Scripture that you could use uh, to support this doctrine would be Isaiah 55:11 or Luke 1:37, uh, Genesis 18:4. No word of God is devoid of power. Uh, Matthew 4, verse 4, and John 17:17, 17, 17, where Christ says that we, He prays to the Father that we would be sanctified by the truth, and He says, "Thy word is truth." God's Word is not only a source of information, then it's a power which changes things in the world. And for that reason, we can speak of God's Word not only as our guide, but also as our goad. What's a goad? It's a word I had to use coming from the city. Impetus. What's that? Impetus. Impetus, but I mean more literally, what is, what is a goad used for? That's right, you prod cattle with it, right, or other animals. Uh, and the Bible is a goad to holy living. It, it not only guides holy living, but it also is an impetus to holy living. Yes? I want to say something. There's power in our sanctification. There's power to do what? It's not just information telling us what to do, but did you say that it is power that's to do what we're supposed to do? That's precisely the point I'm trying to make. The Word of God imparts power. It's a goad to holy living. Yes, I, to use the, uh, to follow the parallel, I suppose you have to speak of unregenerate oxen and regenerate oxen. 
What does a goat do to an unregenerate ox? Makes him more stubborn. And to a regenerate ox, makes him move. To, to regenerate people, God's word is a motivating power that gets them doing what they ought to do. And of course, to the unbeliever, it's a goat in the sense that it hardens him in his unbelief. But nevertheless, we're talking about believers here. And let me continue the point. God's word is a sanctifying power. Hebrews 4.12 says that God's word scrutinizes us. We usually think of studying God's word as a guide that we might scrutinize it. And that's very proper. We should scrutinize and study the word of God so we understand it. But God's word also scrutinizes us. Sometime think about that when you pick up your Bible off the shelf for your morning devotions, you know. This thing's going to do something to you. It's going to look back at you, if you will. It's going to get right down into the intents of your heart. It's going to start exploring. You see that inner dimension of your spiritual life. God's word is not something that can be viewed as merely passive. It's powerful. It's living. It's a discerner. It's a judge of thoughts. And so God's word scrutinizes us. And that's why we go to the Bible not simply to find out what it says, but also to be scrutinized by it. God's word has a kind of power that accomplishes things in our lives. Remember the power of Jesus when he spoke to the sea? Be still. And the sea was still. Remember the power of God's word when he spoke and the world was made? All right. Or the power of Jesus' word when he spoke about Lazarus to Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus was raised from the dead. God's word, you see, accomplishes things. It's a word of power. And this is God's word, this book. Isaiah 55:11 says, So shall my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Luke 1.37 says, Nothing will be impossible with God. Genesis 18.14, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. God speaks, and it happens. And so there's kind of a unique power to the Word of God. It's a covenantal power in the sense that it operates so as to bring either blessing or cursing upon those who hear the Word of God. What did Jesus say about his parables? What effect would they have on people? Well, it would direct his, his faithful followers as to the genuine nature of God's kingdom. But to those who were not his followers, it would be what? He said, seeing they would see not, and hearing they would hear not. His parables would in fact harden their hearts and make it more difficult for them to follow the gospel. And so God's word softens some hearts and it hardens others. It brings life to some, it brings death to others. Remember what uh, Paul himself says, that, uh, that the word of God is a savor of life unto life and death unto death. So you ought to be using the scriptures in your personal sanctification to be transformed, not simply by the facts of redemption, not simply by learning in informative sense of the commands of God, but you ought to be transformed by everything in the Word of God. Jesus said in Matthew 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so it's not just the propositions in the Bible that sanctify us, it's everything in the Bible. Obviously, there are commands in the Bible. They sanctify us by showing how we should live. But there are questions in the Bible, too. There are poems in the Bible. There are puns, and there are jokes, and there are exclamations, and there's praise. And all these things sanctify us. Let's think of a few examples. 
At the Lord's Supper, remember the question is asked, Lord, is it I who, betray the, who betrays thee? Now, is that a sanctifying question in your life? Are you the one who betrays the Lord? Remember Jesus talking to Peter after his resurrection. Peter, do you love me? Are the Lord calling out to Adam in the garden? Adam, where are you? Are these questions something that do something in your life that force you to think about your relationship to the Lord? How about Paul's question? Shall we sin that grace may abound? Have you ever fallen into that way of thinking? Well, it's all right. You know, if, 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 if I just you know, commit a few sins here, because after all, it just goes to show how much more I need to be saved. And it's really a witness to the goodness and grace of God. Terrible reasoning. And so these questions ought to drive us to the Lord and show us our need for Him. There's nothing in the Word of God, I maintain, that doesn't have some ethical relevance. And I think it's a deeply disturbing fact that so many teachers of systematic theology today teach that subject as though certain portions of the Bible are simply matters of stock information to be communicated and not living and powerful. Something It's kind of like holding uh, something that has electrical power running through it. One's got to be very careful how he handles it. One's got to be aware of what that Word can do to him and what it ought to do to him. Of course, God's Word is a Word of truth, as I've said. Jesus said in John 17 that, that the Lord would sanctify us by uh, the truth, and His Word is truth. Now, John Murray points out that there are at least three senses of truth in the Bible, and I think we should note these. There's a, what he calls a metaphysical sense of truth. Truth here is the absolute, or the complete, that which is underived, that which is eternal. That is the truth. Uh, let's see if we can find an example here. Uh, John 6, 32, or Hebrews 8, verse 2. There, um, the author of Hebrews speaks of a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. There, by true tabernacle, he doesn't mean over against a false tabernacle. He means true in the sense of metaphysically absolute and eternal. The, um, the underived, the complete Secondly, the Bible speaks of truth in the more ordinary sense of that which is epistemologically correct, that which is true to the facts. Okay? And you, you can look at Ephesians 4, verse 25 as an example of that. That's what we usually mean by truth today. But then thirdly, there's a practical sense or an ethical sense to the word truth. Um, let's consider 1 John 1, 6. In 1 John 1, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Uh, you might expect John to have said, and you don't say the truth. But John is talking about truth as a manner of life, a way of life, a manner of conduct. One must do the truth. And so, one must note how these senses of the word true and truth in the Bible are connected. God is the source of truth. There's the the metaphysical sense. God himself is the source of truth. And he delivers the truth, true to the facts, in his word. And thereby he creates a state of affairs in which we are to live. God is the source of truth. We find the truth in his word and we're to live in it. And I think we can define truth uh, after we do this biblical study and find that it involves a way of life. We can define truth as conformity in thought, word, and deed to God's mind based on Christ's gospel as it is learned in his word through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Truth is conformity 
in thought, word, and deed to God's mind based on Christ's gospel as illumined by the Holy Spirit. Okay, we need the law of God, remembering, of course, that it's impotent to empower our behavior. The fear of God is the source of our ethical integrity, understood as being afraid of God and being in awe of God. God's word, or God's word of truth, is a guide to our lives as well as a goad to our lives as holy people. Now let's fourthly talk about doctrine, life, and wisdom. Remember, in all of this, we're trying to learn how to be good people. How is it that God makes us the kind of moral agents that are pleasing in his sight? And one of the ways is through doctrine. I, I don't think that's a difficult thing for uh, those who are here tonight to accept uh, or those who attend this church because that's, a, that's something that is stressed in every church that is truly reformed and, and is not afraid to be consistently reformed in its preaching. And I'm glad to say that is heard from the pulpit here. We know that doctrine is a, is a source of sanctification. We need to go on and, and say as well that the doctrine which the Bible presents to us is designated often as good sound and healthy doctrine. That is, doctrine is conducive to spiritual health. Doctrine brings about a sanctified life. A man does not have health-giving doctrine unless he has been made healthy by it. So when people speak of dead orthodoxy, when they're trying to uh, uh, try to put down the preach, uh, hard preaching of doctrine and so forth, I think we need to remind them that this is not dead orthodoxy. Because orthodox doctrine, doctrine which is true to the word of God, is healthy, health-giving doctrine. Any doctrine which does not give health to its hearers is not doctrine which is true to the word of God. Orthodox doctrine and holiness of life are mutually dependent. They're inseparable. And for that reason, I define doctrine as the word of God in action, being used to change lives by the Spirit conveying new birth, wisdom, truth, and knowledge to God's people. Doctrine is the word of God in action, being used to change lives by the Spirit conveying new birth, wisdom, truth, and knowledge. At, in our first lesson in this course on ethics, I stress that every theological doctrine ought to have ethical implications, and that's what I'm implying here as well. According to the Bible, doctrine is one aspect of life. One of the things we do in our lives is to use the word of God toward doctrinal ends, okay? We not only chop down trees and drive cars and eat food, but we also study the Word of God to derive doctrine. That's one of the things that we do in our lives. However, it's not just one aspect of life. The Bible says that doctrine is a focal aspect of life. Doctrine is a key to life since life in, in the sight of God is the result and effect of God's Word. Life is based on doctrine and, it's not, and doctrine is not simply one aspect of life. I think those of you who have had classes from me before can see what I'm driving at. In one sense, you see, doctrine is an aspect of life. Okay, so here you have life. One aspect is doctrine. But on the other hand, life, according to the Word of God, is based on doctrine. And so there is a reciprocal relationship between doctrine and life. Those who know God best, that is, those who have a deepened covenantal relation with him, inclusive of their intellect and behavior, those who truly know God are the best teachers of doctrine. And notice the qualifications for church officers in the Bible. Stresses, you see, the manner of life, the person who teaches. Those 
who are biblical teachers can teach by word and by example. And therefore, life and general holiness affect one's doctrine. Doctrine is not simply the statement of facts, but aims at life and aims at spiritual health. Life nourishes, strengthens, clarifies, and applies doctrine more adequately. Put it another way, doctrine is unto godliness, godliness is unto doctrine. They're interdependent in the Christian's life. Now we need to add to this little discourse on doctrine and life and their, uh, how they aid one another. That is, as the Spirit sanctifies us, we're able to learn doctrine better and apply it. And as we learn doctrine better and apply it, we have better lives. And so a better life brings better doctrine, and better doctrine brings a better life. We need to incorporate in here the notion of wisdom in the Bible as well. How do we gain life through apprehending biblical doctrine? The answer is that when the Word of God is apprehended by somebody who is filled with the Spirit, the result is wisdom. When doctrine, when the Word of God is apprehended by someone filled with the Spirit, the result will be wisdom. And that wisdom is more than learning many true propositions, many true facts. It is actually having an ability. Wisdom in the Bible is having a skill. In particular, the Bible presents wisdom as the skills of godly living necessary to carrying out our calling as Christians in any area of life. And these skills are acquired by spiritual reception and understanding of the Word of God. All right? Wisdom is the skill to use the Bible for holy living. That's why throughout the Bible you find this emphasis upon the wise man who is holy. The wise man is the one who knows how to take the Bible and to apply it to his life. And we need to uh, cultivate relationships with wise men in the Lord so that we can learn from their model, their teaching, and their example. We can learn how uh, to gain experience in using the Word of God in an ethical way. You'll notice that wisdom, according to the Word of God, is grounded in what? Proverbs 1.7. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Okay, so we're back here. Fear of the Lord is the source of ethical integrity. Those who have wisdom have the fear of the Lord and the spiritual ability to use God's word to apply to life. Wisdom in the Bible is something that transforms all of life. In Proverbs particularly, we see an emphasis upon guidance as one of the functions of wisdom. Wisdom guides our lives. Look at James 3, verses 3 to, uh, excuse me, verses 13 to 17. James 3, verses 13 to 17. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show because he knows the deepest, you know, mysteries of the doctrine of predestination, right? There's the wise and understanding man. No. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by his good life his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and faction in your heart, glory not, don't lie against the truth. This wisdom is not a wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. For where jealousy and faction are, there is confusion in every vile deed. But the wisdom that is from above is what? First pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without variance, without hypocrisy. Fruit of righteousness is sown in peace for them that make peace. You notice how ethical the concept of wisdom is? The wisdom from above, you see, brings a life of holiness and good works. And so there's a particular ethical connotation to wisdom. The man who has wisdom uh, 
The man who is wise is one who is able to live in a way that pleases God. And particularly, he has a certain capacity for making decisions in difficult situations. He knows how to apply the Word of God. He has a skill for using God's Word for holiness of life. Therefore, the Word of God brings us ethically necessary information. The Word of God scrutinizes us. I'm going through the outline here. It brings us information that we need. It scrutinizes us. You see, it's a goad for life, and it sanctifies our life, bringing us health and wisdom. Okay, the ne next aspect of the process of personal sanctification that deserves mention, I think, is the knowledge of God. We've really talked about this quite a bit in the class already, so I'm not going to uh, go on at much length here, but let me remind you that the knowledge of God is as part and parcel of the process of personal sanctification. Scripture presents knowledge, even as it presents truth, doctrine, and wisdom, not simply as a propositional competence or an abundance of information. Perhaps one of the saddest things in our, um, in our seminary training today, uh, as well as, I think, in the training throughout the church, is that we think of the knowledge of God, we think of the, uh, the wisdom men are to have, we think of doctrine as somehow stock information, propositions that need to be communicated to people. Now, of course, it is propositions, that need, uh, and they do need to be communicated, but in the deepest sense, the knowledge of the Lord is far more than a propositional competence. To know the Lord, you see, is to be in a covenantal relationship with Him. Knowledge also ha always has an exalted sense in the Bible, an ethical component to it as a personal dimension, if you will. The Bible says that people can know the Lord either in judgment or in blessing. In Exodus 14.4, we read, Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When did the Egyptians come to know that he was the Lord? When the Red Sea waters were coming in upon them. And then they knew, in judgment, who God was. And Jeremiah 22.16 shows us the knowledge of God in blessing. He pled the cause of the afflicted and needy. Then it was well. Is not that what it means to know me? Isn't that a beautiful capsule statement of the knowledge of God and its ethical import? He pled the cause of the afflicted and needy. Then it was well. Is not that what it means to know me, God says, to plead the cause of the afflicted and the needy? Okay, so the knowledge of God has an ethical component. It's uh, not simply the consequence of knowledge, ethics, but ethics is a constituent element of the genuine knowledge of God. And so John says in 1 John chapter 2, And by this we know that we have come to know him. If what? We can answer all the questions on a presbytery exam. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. God is one of the facts of the universe that must be intellectually known. Isn't that right? God is one of the basic facts of the universe as well. 
And just because God is one of the basic facts of the universe, he's the creator, he's the controller, he's the standard of all truth, he's the judge of all men, he's the one who uh, can require that every thought, word, and deed be brought into conformity to his mind, since he is such a basic fact of the universe, it will turn out that our knowledge of God must have an ethical component. Our knowledge of everything else in relationship to God must then also have that ethical component. Since everything must be related to God as creator and judge and sustainer, therefore the ethical component of our knowledge of God pertains to our knowledge of everything whatsoever. To know anything perfectly, I'm saying, involves knowing what God wants us to do with that thing. Okay, you say you know all about cows or lions or giraffes? Well, now, knowing about a cow isn't simply knowing, you know, that cows give milk and they do this, that, and the other, and what they eat and what they look like. Knowing a cow, in the genuine sense, knows how it means to know how to use the cow to glorify God and to further his kingdom in this world and to obey his law with respect to it. To know anything perfectly involves knowing what God wants us to do with that thing. And so knowledge, you see, is part of sanctification. To truly know God and to know anything at all is to be the kind of person who uses it for the ends God intended. Okay, and one more point about the knowledge of God. I'm skipping down my notes here, but I would like to bring this out. In theology, concepts which are taught from the Bible should be viewed not simply, again, as information, stock information to be transferred from one mind to another, like one can from a shelf to another shelf, but concepts in theology should be viewed as achievements in sanctification or victories for one's life. That is, to really understand a doctrine is to have a victory in your life, is, is, is to overcome sin and, and vileness and impurity in your life. To truly understand a doctrine is to know how to use it in your life. It's to have that doctrine bring you a spiritual power and ability to function as, in a way that pleases God. So Christian doctrine should be seen as, as an achievement in sanctification. Let me give you an example. When you get to the point where you can say from the heart, Psalm 23... Then you're not just learning Psalm 23. Then you're using Psalm 23 in terms of ethical ability and power. When you can get to the point and say from the heart, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And say that not just because Christians are supposed to say those sorts of things, but be able to say it under fire, as the biblical writers said it under fire. To be able to say that in moments of weakness, when humanly speaking, you don't think you can do anything at all. When humanly speaking, as a matter of fact, you can't do very much. When you're able to say then, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When in the very face of death you can say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Then, you see, you're using Christian doctrine to advance your Christian maturity. In short, theology has to be practiced or else it's not healthy theology. It doesn't bring the knowledge of God as God intended it. Sixthly, in sanctification, we mustn't forget the place of repentance and faith. Faith is emphasized in the Westminster Confession as a motive for ethics. In uh, the Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 16, section 2, we read that good works are fruits and evidences of a true and lively, which is to say living, faith. 
A true and living faith will have good fruits, uh, good works as its fruits and evidences. And so you see how faith, again in the Bible, is not simply propositional. Faith is not simply a matter of holding to that which is true. Faith is actually living in a particular way that conforms to the truth. I'll give you an example, an obvious one. A man says that he believes the apple that I hand him is a poisoned apple. All right? He has this proposition. It's come from my mind into his mind, and he holds it firmly. This is a poisoned apple. And this man, without any desire to die, nevertheless takes a bite out of the apple. Now, does he truly have faith that the apple is a poisoned apple? You would say no. Is that because he doesn't profess to believe it? No, it's because he doesn't live in a way which shows that profession to be genuine. Genuine faith is not simply a matter of saying. It's a matter of doing. And that's James' point in James chapter 2. You say you have faith? Well, let me give you a few examples here. Somebody comes to you and is, uh, and is needy, is hungry, doesn't have adequate clothing, and you say, go, eat, be filled, be clothed, be warmed. But you don't do anything for them? Will that faith save you? Is that faith genuine faith? No. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. What is the Old Testament word for believe? Any seminary students remember? Be clothed. Be warmed. But you don't do anything for them? Will that faith save you? Is that faith genuine faith? No. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. What is the Old Testament word for believe? Any seminary students remember? What is the verb? To believe. Aman. Aman. Right, or amen, which is also the Greek form, amen. And Abraham amened God. And it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And Abraham did that which God wanted him to do, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. How did God, how did Abraham amen God so that it would be reckoned to him for righteousness? What's the example? given to us in the Bible. And when God asked for his son, his only begotten son, to be offered up, Abraham did what? He amened God, and he did it. And that was reckoned for righteousness. See, even faith, when it comes to justification by faith, must be understood in a more active sense than we usually do. Faith is not some ghostly thing in the recesses of our minds. Faith is a matter of life. It's fidelity to the word of God. It's commitment to the Word of God. It means when the Word of God says this is poison, we don't want to take a bite out of it. Okay, faith then is to live and to think reliingly on the Word of God. Repentance is also part of genuine faith, according to the Scriptures, according to our confession of faith. Is repentance believing that you are a sinner? Are there people who believe that they are sinners who have not repented? Oh, I'm not saying that you can repent without believing that you're a sinner. I'm saying, is such belief sufficient for repentance? Well, let me ask you this. Is it enough to repent that you hate sin also? I mean, you have an attitude. No, it's not. What else must one do if he genuinely repents? Turn from sin. That's exactly what the word means in the Greek, to turn around, to change directions, to have a change of mind. Meta not eo. All right, so repentance is knowing that you're a sinner, hating your sin, and turning from your sin. Notice then that repentance is a matter of sanctification, turning from unholiness toward holiness of life. 
And so both faith and repentance in the Bible have very strong and have a very strong ethical path to them. What's the difference between repentance and faith then? If they both have this very strong ethical thrust to them, what's the difference between repentance and faith? A little bit louder, Annie. Well, that, I think that might be one way of putting it. Yes. What I, what I have in my notes, it's a little bit different, but I, I'm, I'm, I think maybe you have caught it anyway. Is that the distinctive quality of faith is it casts aside all hope of salvation in oneself. It turns away from all reliance on human merit, trusting exclusively in Christ. And yet, it is an action. It's a life which trusts exclusively in Christ and not in ourselves. Faith, you see, does not rely in oneself, but turns to the Lord for one's merit. But of course, it is a turning. Repentance is a turning away from sin to holiness of life and obedience. Okay, two repentance, faith, the knowledge of God, doctrine, life, wisdom, God's word, God's truth, the fear of God, and God's law. We need to add also the means of grace. I wonder if uh, anybody in this room has ever used the phrase growth in grace. Believe that we grow in grace. Has anybody ever used that phrase? What does it mean to grow in grace? Now think about the nature of grace. Undeserved merit, bestowed by God, can one grow in undeserved merit? What does it mean to grow in grace? And that's a strange expression. Oh, grow in one's understanding of grace. I was going to say, if you think of, uh, you know, I'm not saying grace is dirt, <laughs> but if you think of, you know, that's what you're planted in, and then you grow up from it. And since you grasp your nourishment from it. Oh, you grow in the context of grace. Or if I can suggest, you know how in Greek the word "n" is used not only in terms of location, but it's used instrumentally, by means of. To grow in grace, I, I trust, really falls back in archaic use upon the notion of growing by means of grace. And what are the means of grace, now that we've come to that part of our lesson? What are the means of grace, anybody? Those of you who are growing have got to know what the means of such growth are. What are they? Hearing the word preached. What's that, Gray? The sacraments are a means of grace. What are the sacraments? Good. Stop there. If you go any further, you're Roman Catholic. <laughs> the sacraments, the word. What else is a means of grace? Prayer. Prayer. Okay, these are the, the ones that are standardly used in the textbooks. I think there's something uh, to the need um, for theologians to reopen that discussion and talk about more things as a means by which we... Uh, grow. I think uh, persecution is a means of grace, and there are other things. Charitable giving can be a means of grace, that sort of thing. But uh, was there a question? Well, but the means of grace are supposed to enable us to obey. All right. If you read in um, Theonomy, you will notice that um, in the chapter on sanctification, the discussion of the means of grace points out that prayer is not heard by God apart from a determined life of obedience to God's law. You'll find that one does not understand the word of God properly, apart from abiding in the word, which is to say living in the word of truth. Uh, you'll notice that one can uh, betray his baptism by living a life that is unfitting of a baptized person, as living a life that's not planted in Christ in newness of life and works of righteousness and that one can take the sacraments in an unworthy manner when one approaches the Lord's table outside of an attitude of repentance, turning from one's evil deeds toward a determined uh, uh, 
use of God's word as a pattern for his life. And so the means of grace, my point here, is uh, they do not work magically. I think perhaps one of the most detrimental things, uh, a notion that's not explicitly taught, but certainly underlies a lot of uh, thinking among God's people in the evangelical church today, is that if they'll just uh, have so many minutes of prayer and so many minutes of Bible reading and make sure they're baptized and are present at the Lord's table, that somehow these things will work automatically to make them better and holier people. The means of grace do not work ex opere operato, okay? So the seminary students will understand that, um, and now let's have them explain for those who don't know the Latin. What's ex opere operato? Out of the working they work. Who teaches the doctrine of ex opere operato? The Roman Catholic Church teaches that there is something magical in the means of grace, so that the mere use of them imparts merit or imparts power or holiness to the life of the practitioner. But we don't believe that that's true of the means of grace. We believe that they must be uh, associated with a life of repentance, faith, and, uh, and turning to God. I wonder if you might be able to, to sort of... I understand, you know, that they're not ex operato, and I, I can see what you're saying there. I'm wondering how that fits into the context of, for example, presumptive regeneration and, and, the, and the, the giving of, of the sacraments. Uh, you know, obviously with, with uh, instruction and with discipline by the parents to children uh, who have not yet, uh, as I understand, not yet confessed Christ, but yet are members of the, you know, our covenant children. And, well, what's the question? Well, in other words, it, it, you know, we're saying we shouldn't deny them this means of grace. Right. All right. And uh, if they've not yet professed faith in Christ, all right, then it seems to me, by what you're saying, it would be a means of grace anyway until they profess Christ. And at that point, you know, you, you end the discussion because, you know, they become... Well, I, I, if I can relate that to, to something that's, you know, very personal to us right now, we're making plans to baptize our adopted daughter, all right? And she still struggles with the English language. You know, I have doubt that she understands often enough sentences that are used in the home, although she does speak English fairly well, given a year's uh, time here. But now she's going to be baptized, and I've been trying to explain to her over the last few days what it means that she's going to be baptized. Um, I have no hope that by the time she uh, is baptized, Lord willing, this Sunday, that she'll be able to answer all the questions of the Shorter Catechism or even explain the notion of baptism in terms acceptable to John Murray. I don't think that she's going to be there. Um, sometimes I wonder if her father is, but nevertheless, she won't be. And nevertheless, I do teach her, very simply, that when she is baptized, that means she belongs to God. Now, if she belongs to God, if that's what baptism, very simply put, if baptism means that one is in a covenant relation with him, and so God owns this person, and one is responsible to his owner, then uh, if she should grow up, in a life of disobedience to the covenant, disobedience to God's word, then, of course, that will be a damning thing to her that she was baptized, that she had the mark of ownership placed upon her, and yet she didn't live by it. And yet if she grows up in obedience to that, that will be a means of grace unto her salvation, won't it? And so, see, I don't believe that uh, uh, the fact that we deny ex opere operato as Presbyterians means that we ought not to baptize undiscerning children because it is still a privilege to them to have the mark of God's ownership put upon them. And hopefully from the very you know, moment of their earliest conception, they grow up in the context of knowing they have been marked out for God. 
even as a young Hebrew boy would grow up with the constant mark in his very flesh that he was different from other boys, other Gentiles. He was circumcised. Okay. Would it be too far to pursue this in terms of the idea of communion with the idea that, you know, would you, since we're talking about discipline, a person has to be under discipline as they, you know, it should be internal, they should examine themselves as they come for communion. Mm-hmm. And uh, if it seems that if uh, a man doesn't examine himself and if the elders can see that he isn't, then they, they fence the, the table. Right? So likewise, the father would have to, to fence the table from his son. And I'm just wondering, uh, you know, would you wind up constantly fencing? You know, how would you know uh, if the child has not professed faith in Christ, uh, what, then, then at that point, why would you not be fencing? You know, have to therefore fence the table from him. And at that point it comes a moot discussion because you have to wait until he professes faith in Christ. Are you assuming that a child should take communion apart from profession of faith in Christ? That's what I understand from... Well, I say I don't subscribe to that doctrine. I don't believe anybody should take the Lord's Supper apart from profession of faith in Christ. But you see, one must add to that if you understand my whole view that little children profess faith in Christ in a way a little bit different than adults do. You say, I'm not at all adverse to the idea of a two-and-a-half-year-old or three-year-old child professing faith in Christ, although that's abhorrent to some of my Christian reform pals, you know. Um, I was in a church when I was in college, in fact, where one Christian reformed elder, it was an OPC church, but it came out of the Christian reformed church, um, maintained that nobody should join the church prior to the 18th birthday because nobody could really have a comprehension of the doctrines of grace prior to the 18th birthday. And uh, I love the man and the Lord, but I abhor that doctrine. I think that's a terrible thing to teach. Jesus said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, for as such is the kingdom of God. And so I believe that a, a little child can profess faith in Christ and should take communion. But I think we're a long way off from a consistent practice in the Reformed churches. We can't even decide what our attitude is toward the Old Testament, much less what we're going to do in terms of the continuity of uh, sacramental observance between Old and New. So I'm not going to go any further onto that. We've talked about what enables us to be holy people. We've talked about the process of becoming holy people, and now I want to talk about decision-making as holy people. All right? I've assured you, you are the image of God. You who are believers are renewed in the image of God. I've gone through six or seven uh, major elements of sanctification. The law of God is a pattern. The word of God is a goad. Uh, wisdom, uh, doctrine and life, knowledge, repentance, faith, the means of grace, all these things, which hopefully will help you now to be better people this week and for the rest of your lives. I want to know how you make decisions with all that. You're able to do so, I've told you. I've given you the process by which you grow to be better people and more holy, but what is the decision-making process in sanctification? In the Bible, this is called proving the Lord's will. I'm afraid much too often we don't hear about this concept in ethics courses or in Christian discussions of sanctification, but it's a very crucial concept and it's found often in the Bible. When I talk about proving the Lord's will or the proof of the Lord's will, uh, I mean fundamentally that process by which immersion in the Christian way of life brings about ethical assurance. Immersion in the Christian life brings about ethical assurance. And by ethical assurance, I mean a knowledge of God's will in particular situations. 
Okay, you're in a particular situation. A very tough decision has to be made ethically. You want to know, how should I live in such a way as to please the Lord? How can I prove the Lord's will? By immersion in the Christian life, one then is brought to ethical assurance. There aren't a lot of people around today, at least that I have found, maybe you have, but there aren't a lot of people around, even professing Christ, who teach with much ethical assurance. You know what I mean by ethical assurance? In a tough situation, I am sure that this is what the Lord wants us to do. Now, I know people who talk about the Spirit directing them and guiding them and things like that. But upon cross-examination, even those with a Pentecostal bent back off, if they're honest. Or they qualify what they're saying to the point of pathology so that it's very difficult to find anything concrete in what the Lord has told them. But I'm talking about in a particular pointed applicatory situation who has ethical assurance and I'm saying it's the person who is able to prove the Lord's will because he has been immersed in the Christian way of life in Romans 12 verse 2 we read do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect John Murray in his commentary says that this means, this proving of the Lord's will means to discover or to find out or learn by experience what the will of the Lord is and therefore to learn how approved will the will of God is. And you need to notice the context. Paul is talking about yielding and giving up your body as a living sacrifice. Now, of course, that means the whole person giving, given over to God. And how do you do that? Specifically, how does Paul want you to be a living sacrifice? He says, well, here's how you are a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Someone who is a living sacrifice is someone who is transformed by the renewing of his mind. And because he's transformed, he is able to prove what the will of the Lord is. Or notice in Philippians 1, verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ in all discernment. Sometimes that is translated all perception or sensitivity. In all perception and sensitivity you may approve the things that differ. It's love that brings about the ability to prove the things that differ. Loving God leads to knowledge and sensitivity and discernment. In Ephesians 5, verse 8 and following, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. There again you have the concept of proving God's will, learning what is pleasing to the Lord. The believer in this passage, you'll notice, is considered the light. We are children of light. We are the light. We not only walk in the light, but we are light. You were once darkness, Paul says, but are now light in the Lord. You see, by walking and abiding in the Word of God, the Word of God, which is light, becomes part of the believer's life so that he becomes, as it were, like the Word of God, light itself. And the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. As you are walking in the light, in the light of what you are, you may prove what is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Again, this immersion in the Christian life, then, this total dedication, being a living sacrifice, walking in love, walking in the light, being children of light, enables you to have ethical assurance 
but perhaps the most explicit passage in the New Testament uh, teaching this concept is Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. Concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have become, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The principle by which one is to judge all actions, all words, all thoughts, is the word of God. That's the standard. But there are some people, Hebrews 5 teaches us, who do not have experience in that criterion or standard. They don't have experience in using the word of God. And because they're unexperienced or inexperienced, they're immature. And being immature, they don't have requisite ability to distinguish between righteousness and unrighteousness. You see, here's a person who has the principle, who has the word of God, who has the standard, but doesn't know how to use the standard. All right? I want my three-year-old son to measure the backyard. Is it sufficient for me to hand him a yardstick and say, now, Jonathan, measure the backyard? You say, well, he should be able to do it. He's got the standard. What more do you need? Well, you need ability. You, know how, you have to be able to use the standard. And this is what the author of Hebrews is complaining about. Is you've got the word. You ought to be teachers of the word, but you're really, you see, such that need to be taught again, and you're babes. Why? Because you haven't experienced the use of the word. You haven't trained yourself in the use of the word, and therefore you can't discern righteousness from unrighteousness. You haven't got that pra through practice and acquired skill to use God's word. The senses must be exercised, the author of Hebrews is saying. See, you need to work up your spiritual muscles by the use of the Bible. And so what we have pictured here is a growing ability to discern the truth in God's word and to apply the truth in God's word to our lives. That's the process of proving the Lord's will so that we can come to ethical assurance. Imagine somebody says to you, well, now I know what the Bible says, and I know what the facts of the situation are, but I still don't know what to do. I know what the Bible teaches. I, I know what the facts are. And yet I still don't know what conclusion to come to. Have you ever been in that situation? I dare say you have. We all are in that kind of situation. Whenever we're in a situation of ethical, um, a lack, uh, in a situation where we lack ethical assurance, and yet we know what the Bible says, and we're perfectly aware of what the facts of our situation are, we're in that situation. Well, what I want to say is, as Christians who are helping fellow Christians, we ought to say back to such a person, no, you really don't know what the Bible says. You really don't know what the Bible says. Not in the full sense. Because you don't know what the Bible says until you know what the application of the Bible is. Just like Jonathan doesn't know what the yardstick's all about until he knows how to use the yardstick. And so a person who says he knows what the Bible says but doesn't know how he should live doesn't really know how the Bible bears on him and therefore doesn't know what the Bible says. Imagine someone says, I know that the Bible teaches you shall not steal. And I know what embezzling is, but I'm not sure that embezzling is stealing. Does he really know what the Bible teaches? Or imagine somebody who says, I know the Bible says murder is wrong and I know what abortion is. I know all the medical facts and all the biological facts about abortion. I know what happens in abortion. I can put the two together, but I can't say whether abortion is murder or not. 
such a person really know how the Word of God bears on the facts? Well, the scriptural diagnosis of uh, the problem that such a person has is that he has not exercised his senses adequately to discern good and evil. He has not exercised his senses adequately to discern good and evil. Now, one thing you can tell such a person, and certainly should tell such a person, is to read more scripture and to examine the situation more closely. But there are people who know a great deal about scripture. In fact, there are people who could probably give us more verses uh, than we could bring forth about certain subjects, who have a tremendous understanding of the cultural background of the Bible, who know all the critical theories about scripture, who in a sense have more biblical knowledge than any of us might have and nevertheless don't have any ability to see how the Bible applies to situations which we face in life. So sometimes our growth as people who want to be pleasing to the Lord, sometimes our decision-making process so that we can prove the Lord's will is more than a rational process. It's more than just thinking something through. Sometimes a person needs to gain experience in holy living so that he might properly use the Word of God to make applications. Sometimes we come to what I want to call an ability to see things or an inability to see things. That's an internal trait. You know, if you talk to uh, somebody who has some training in, in music and, uh, and uh, evaluation of music, uh, sometimes that person will say things which you just can't understand, you just don't follow. Uh, or you're sitting at a concert and somebody says, well, you notice you know, X, Y, and Z about this. And you sit there and you say, no, I don't notice that about this at all. I just don't see it. See, that person has a developed taste and ability in musical matters, which you don't have, or in artistic matters. And I want to liken this to, you see, the wise man who is able to use the Word of God to make ethical decisions. Sometimes he can see things which we can't see. And that's true, you see, of arguments in theology, too. Uh, I've heard, I don't know how many times, I couldn't count probably the number of times I've heard arguments between Reformed Baptist and, uh, and Pado Baptist. And it's surprising to me how often the arguments are repeated on both sides over and over again. Nothing's added that hasn't been said in the literature. And in fact, people who argue with each other on a day-to-day -day basis or from month to month usually bring up the same considerations with the same person over and over and over again, all right? Now, look, this is not a polemic against Reformed Baptists, okay? So those of you who are Reformed Baptists in the group, don't take offense at this. Sanctification is a multifaceted thing, and the lead point of sanctification is not whether you baptize your babies, all right? I may be more sanctified on that subject, and I have no doubt, but in God's sight, you're more sanctified on other, word, on other ones. And so I'm not talking about overall quality of life or comparing, you know, spirituality. But I would like to say that whoever's right or wrong, the difference is that when all the facts are brought up by the Pado baptists and all the facts brought up by the Reformed Baptists, one has an ability to see and the other doesn't. Now, I'm not going to you know, play a game with you. Obviously, I think the Pado baptist has the ability there. All right? I'm convinced of that. I think the pattern is there. I think it's, it's demonstrable. But I'm surprised at the number of Christians who, in, or, in uh, all things being equal and other matters, certainly holy people, and yet don't have the ability to see the pattern. What I'm suggesting is that this proving of the Lord's will, what, do you understand Melchizedek? Do you understand infant baptism? You know, whatever it may be, the author of Hebrews says it's because you have not gained enough experience in using the word of God. I'd like to illustrate this gaining of experience to use the word of God. All right.
Yes, I didn't major in art. But I hope um, the point can be made. Okay, now you have all the facts before you. All the lines are on the board. And the question becomes, what do you see on the board? Now, anybody who has seen this little demonstration of my classes before, who has read Wittgenstein or anything, then you're not fair game for this discussion. But now, what do you see on the board? Well, the lines given us... <laughs> some people can't see anything at all. <laughs> of course, there are none so blind as those who will not see either. And so <laughs> I have a comeback even for you. But, um, you know, following this pattern of lines... I find that most people will say, well, that's a, that's a rather ugly and not very well formed, but it's a duck, right? Okay, here's the, here's the duck's, you know, bill and his eye and all that, so you have a duck, all right? Now, those of you who see a duck, does anybody see a duck? Oh, good. All right. Those of you, see, the lesson's going to be worthwhile for somebody tonight. Those of you who see a duck, I want you to look at it again. Put it in a new context. Take another approach to it, you know. In a new perspective, can you also see a rabbit there? <laughs> Boy, you've made my night. This is fantastic. Usually I get all sorts of, you know, really nasty jokes about my abilities and so on. Of course, there's a rabbit there, too. You see, here's the rabbit, and he's looking this way with his ears behind him. And what's the point of this lesson? I don't know. I forgot, too. <laughs> no. The point is that you need to cultivate an ability to see as, okay? Sometimes you see this as a rabbit, and sometimes you see this as a duck. Now, my question is, is the change from seeing it as a duck to seeing it as a rabbit, is that due to a change in the image itself? No, I haven't added any lines. I haven't done anything more to it. It's a change in you, isn't it? It's a change because you've put yourself into another situation uh, you've brought another context to bear on it or something like that. Uh, let me give you another example here. Okay, what, what have I just put up there on the screen? An arrow. And which way is the arrow pointing? To the right. What kind of society did you grow up in? <laughs> did you know that there are cultures where, you know, this is really a sign pointing to the left? You see, this here, this wedge, is an indication that you're going to point out something within this field and this is the direction you must go within that angle. So you see, this arrow in another society might really be pointing the other way. Is that impossible? Is it impossible there could be a culture that uses arrows like that? No, it's not impossible. What's the difference? Form of life, context, cultural conditioning, perspective, any number of ways of putting it. The difference is not in the image, the difference is in the person. And so the experience of seeing something as something else depends on knowing uh, a form of life, having a particular background, an organi organizing worldview or perspective. In Christian ethics, we need to come to see our contemporary problems and our particular situations in ethics as biblical ones. We mustn't be what I call category blind, unable to see God's patterns for conduct uh, in the Bible applying to our own life. Okay, the Bible says you must put a railing around your roof, all right? Now, I have a Christian brother who has a front porch that is a very dangerous front porch. And somebody who fell off of it would be uh, very likely, all things being equal, seriously uh, hurt. So I go to him and I say, listen, brother, wouldn't it be a good idea for you to put a railing, you know, on your front porch? And the man says, why? I don't see any reason to do that. I say, well, because the Bible says you must put a railing around the roof of your house. And he says, roof of my house? You're talking about the front porch, dummy. 
Well, who's the dummy here? In the sense of one who is dull, who's not able to see. He's category blind. He's not able to take a biblical illustration and apply it to his life. Think about King David here for a minute. Does anybody have any doubt in, in their minds that King David knew that adultery was wrong when he was committing the act with Bathsheba? I'm not saying was he concentrating on that fact. I'm saying did he know it? Would he have been able to answer the question, okay? David, is adultery wrong? And he would have known in his head, yes, it's wrong. And yet somehow David didn't see his situation as God would want him to. He lacked the requisite internal spiritual ability to use the word of God and apply it to his life. What happened? Well, God sent the prophet Nathan to David. Nathan came and told David a very interesting story. He said, David, there was, you see, this, this man who had nothing in life but this little uh, lamb. And that dear little beloved lamb is all that he had. And his rich neighbor, who had all sorts of you know, lambs and things like that, came and stole that lamb just so that he could feed one of his guests. What was David's reaction? He was outraged. He said, bring the man here and we'll execute him on the spot. But you see, you, you bring David just to that point where he sees the pattern, and then Nathan, you see, drives home the message like a ton of bricks falling on him. He says, David, thou art the man. David somehow knew the facts. He knew what God's word said, and he didn't bring the two together. But by use of another pattern, Nathan was able to make David see as. Where David only saw rabbits, Nathan made him see ducks, if I can you know, use our metaphor here tonight. God's word, we must learn to use the patterns of God's word and apply them to our lives. And that requires sanctification, requires wisdom, requires internal change, the Holy Spirit's enlightenment. It requires maturity and knowledge and faith and repentance. It requires, as the author of Hebrews says, experience in the word of God. And those who don't have experience do not have the training necessary to take the same pattern, the same lines. You see, uh, sometimes I talk to people who know thou shalt not kill us in the Bible, and they know that uh, a fetus is a human being of sorts, and that the fetus dies when it's taken out of the mother's womb, and yet they don't know that abortion is murder. And my feeling about such people is, and this is not so much, you know, my righteousness condemning their unrighteousness, but my feeling is, in the light of the Bible, they lack the requisite internal sanctification to see the facts the way God wants them to. That depends on whether God holds them accountable for that lack of ability. Do you think he holds them accountable for that lack of ability? He most certainly does. Uh, there is progression in our sanctification. And that needs to be recognized, and it's an important element of our Christian counseling and exhortation and all that. But the fact remains that God's the holy God, and he never tolerates less than holy behavior and perfect behavior. Now, we are responsible to have that ability. We lost it, you see, because of Adam. And, uh, and it's our responsibility to gain it back and to be working toward it. But no, we don't lose responsibility because we don't have the ability to see as. Did Christ hold the Pharisees accountable because they didn't understand the parables? Yes, he did. See, he hardened their hearts by means of the parables. And yet the parables were a means of helping others to see the kingdom of God as they should. All right. The decision-making process, then, of proving the Lord's will is a matter of immersing yourself in the Christian life. When you're not able to make ethical decisions because your sanctification is not uh, sufficiently progressed to do it, then my suggestion to you is you ought to do some more praying and some more reading and some more studying and some more good works and some more repenting, all right? On and on and on. This is not something I can give you in terms of rational steps. I can't say, you don't know how to apply God's word to that situation that's so tough in your life right now? A, B, C, D, and you can do it. 
doesn't happen. What you've got to do, if you're not able to lift 250 pounds, bench press 250 pounds, you've got to start with 160 and then work up to 170 and to 180 until you can finally get to that point. You've got to exercise your muscles until you can handle that load. And if you can't see what the right thing to do in a situation is, if you lack ethical assurance, then it's not simply a matter of going back to the Bible and trying to learn more, although sometimes it is. But you may know all that the Bible says about the situation. You may know all the facts and still not know what to do. And in such a situation, that's because you lack an ability to see as. You're not able to prove the Lord's will because you're not exercised in doing it. And one must grow in his sanctification to gain that ability. And that, you see, is the personal and motivational side of ethics. Let's take a 10-minute break.